Hello, and welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Quentin Whedon. Quentin is currently the Director, North America Transportation and Trade Operations at Aero Electronics. But back when we talked in late March for this podcast, he was the Senior Manager, Supply Chain Sourcing at Danone. I asked Quentin to join me on the Freight Vine because of some really interesting things he's done in the freight transportation procurement space. He has a long history in the analytics, supply chain, logistics, and procurement areas with roles at McKinsey, Sports Authority, IBM Supply Chain Solutions, and Amerisource Bergen. In our conversation, we'll dive into transportation procurement, focusing on both stages, awarding and tendering. Quentin has some really great insights on best practices for both of these stages. Following my conversation with Quentin, I'll be joined by Dr. Ian Amayoub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, Quentin. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here today. Yeah, so um, it's weird. We have not actually met in person, but I think you've been involved in our shipper roundtables that we've been holding virtually for the last several months now. So I feel like I know you, even though we really haven't met in person yet. Yeah, we've had, uh, had, had, had some great interaction over the technology available, and I think that everybody's taking more advantage of, of these days, given the, the background of the pandemic here the last six months or in, a year now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it feels like uh, multiple years, but uh, but let's get into it. Let's. Uh, the reason why I invited you to come on is because of some of the conversations that we've had during our monthly uh, chipper roundtables. And so to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role at Danone as Senior Manager of Supply Chain Sourcing and a little bit about the company, just to give us some background. Sure. Danone, as it exists today, was formed through the merger of the Dan and Yogurt Company and the White Wave Foods Company based in Colorado. And that happened just a few years ago. So it's now one merged large entity uh, in the food and beverage category, you know, as a, as a CPG shipper. Um, my role there, I'm in procurement, but I'm locked uh, directly at the hip with my, my colleagues in operations. And my role is logistics procurement. So focusing on all the freight spend uh, for our company in the U- in the U.S., all of our business units combined from all of our all of our shipping locations, where we really focus on um, temp-controlled uh, finished goods distribution from our plants or our distribution centers out to our retail customers. Okay. Um, so it's nearly okay. nearly all full truckload. My responsibility is to source and support operations and how we execute day to day freight. That's really interesting. I didn't know you had the dual the procurement married up with the ops guy. I, I've known that at a, a couple other companies. Um, does that is that done on purpose to provide a little tension between the two? Because you have slightly different goals. Do you report up differently? One to the COO, one to the CFO, or how how does that work? Yeah, it's, I, that's that's close. Actually, we do have a, a procurement organization that reports to mm-hmm. a leader of procurement, but that leader of procurement is tied into the COO, right? So the operations right. team is obviously tied into the COO. So while I belong to the function of procurement or more specifically indirect procurement, because logistics is a, an area of indirect spend, um, we still all report into the same executive operating officer in North America, so that there is a point that brings us together. And uh, you know, because I only focus on freight, um, we are locked in together quite closely as a team. That's that's great because I've talked to other organizations where if someone gets switched, um, it can have a dramatic uh, swing effect. The the whole strategy could change on a dime. Having two people 
seems like that makes it a little more stable. Has it? Have you had this similar structure in other companies that you've worked with, or is this unique first time you filled this kind of dual role? Um, it's it's not unique. Many many CPG companies, I mean many companies in general, have a procurement department, and that procurement indirect procurement supports or is in tangent parallel effort to the operations department. Um, I've seen different configurations of that. Sometimes right. I've seen the procurement managers also reporting to the operational leaders, but they have a dotted line back into procurement to ensure that they follow the overall corporate objectives and supplier sourcing yeah. objectives and rules and policies. So so there's there's two parts of that. I've seen many flavors of this, but in, in, in general, we do see a lot of other CPG companies with a procurement department. Sometimes there is, a, of course, a rub. There are slightly different objectives at times. Right. Um, and that can happen. And there is a divergence, you know, with a, a pure commoditized procurement approach versus operational reality of, of making sure you have continuity in your your carriers and the capacity and the the, the, the the history of relationship that often exists, which really, really does support, you know, how you deliver service to your customers. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, you took this rollover about uh, a year and a half ago. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. It was it was funny you say that it was about about six months before the pandemic broke out. Um, you know, the company was just just settling in after a large merger, so you know it was a rather fragmented approach to sourcing spend. Um, you know, sourcing the logistics capacity and setting up the contracts, etc. We did not operate uh, on on really an annual cadence. We didn't have that in place. It was rather fragmented, regionalized. Uh, mm-hmm. We engage cares directly, and uh, part of the reason for my joining and part of the the objectives that we had as a team was to move to more of a common approach of an annual bid cadence um, at scale for our network, okay. and 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 not because of the pandemic, just coincidentally, we <laughs> did we we did launch uh, you know our first ever ever network wide combined sourcing event right at the time of the pandemic breaking loose last April, right? Wow. So that was purely coincidental, but it was our first approach to doing this as a network, using bid optimization software. We use the okay. Jagger platform that a lot of large okay. shippers use, right? So when you when you have 150 carriers bidding on 1,200 lanes, that's a pretty complicated analysis, and we're quickly beyond the spreadsheet environment. Sure. If you really want to know those costs, service trade-offs, and the number of permutations behind all that, and you want to do those what-if kind of analysis to make your award decisions, you really yeah. need to you really need a scalable uh, uh, you know software solution to help you do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have a lot of history with the RFP op- bid optimization software, but and we'll talk about that more in, in a few minutes. But let me ask a couple questions about uh, your role um, because the pandemic hit now you've been there six months probably established yourself and you you had the opportunity to meet people face to face and then the pandemic hit how did your role or how did the operations change Um, i assume you went 100 percent virtual initially at least yeah that's right and we and we still are for all the the corporate staff and that's Hmm. that's exactly right like a lot of corporate staff um late march we did go 100 percent virtual everyone everyone basically went home and had to stay home there was no choice um thank goodness i did have that short period of time to meet people form relationships get to know everybody a little bit that did make it a little easier to to go remote um, and, and the, really the, for us as a company, you know, we're in the food, food and beverage industry. So we were deemed an, an essential shipper, uh, like many food companies were. 
And so the, the focus as a company really quickly um, turned to our factories and our, in right. our production plants and the people on the front lines. How do we keep them safe? Um, mm-hmm. What can we do for them? Um, and, and then just like many other food shippers, we, you know, we, we went through some, some volatility in March and April. Uh, but then as the, as the distribution patterns shifted, you know, no restaurant deliveries or food service right, deliveries, right. right? But now you're going to the grocery stores, grocery store volumes are going up 10 to 15%. So it was a major wow. channel shift, right, with many of those products. So now we're just talking about repackaging, resequencing, et cetera. Like, like a lot of food companies have gone through, not, not too different, really. Well, let me ask a question about yeah. that, um, because I've talked to a bottler, and they said that the, the shipping to a retailer in cans versus going to a restaurant in, you know, the big uh, the condensed uh, the boxes, essentially, can increase the number of truckloads for the equivalent amount of, of uh, beverage by like 6x. Do you have a similar type of thing? Did you did your... The number of truckloads required per product pound or whatever product did that increase because of the different packaging or did you have any challenges along that not not so many because of that reason from a packaging mm-hmm. perspective um re- really not many um the challenge has been for us as we've been under a lot of demand demand has significantly grown so that compromises fill rates Right. So now we're not putting as much product on a truck because we're out, you know, we have a allocation logic based on customers and channels. We're not filling the trucks to their max utilization. However, that same demand continues to be there from the buyers, the retailers, the grocery store operators. So they continue that ordering pattern. They still want the same amount of goods. We still ship short. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's a vicious cycle where we have required more trucks to move the demand to customers right, than we right. otherwise would have simply because of a fill rate issue. Now, did you run into OTIF problems where you're penalized if you're going to a certain retailers where they uh, require you to be both on time and in full or get a pen- penalized if not? Did that cause any challenges there? A- absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're no different than any other vendors into the retail segment, right, where there is very rigorous and aggressive. And even during this period, uh, Walmart did increase their OTIF requirement, uh, right. which, you know, last, which is just about a year ago now, if, I, if memory serves. So, so absolutely, um, that has been an issue. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is a topic. Um, does it directly influence maybe how we source freight? Not as much as it could or should, but it's absolutely on the table. Um, like many other vendors into the retail sector, we we do unfortunately suffer OTIF fines um, that can be significant. Yeah, and so if you had to make the choice between being on time but short, or wait to make sure it's full, but you know not on time, do you always select one over the other? Yeah, the current trend has absolutely been let's ship what we can um, yeah. for multiple reasons, right? When the when the network is full, when the plants are at 100% capacity, that means the warehouses are near full, right? So we can't necessarily hold back our order fulfillment process until we have more inventory on hand to make mm-hmm. it 100%, right? So it is, and, and we have, you know, when you're talking about milk and yogurt and these kind of products, they do not have long shelf life. Right. So you don't want to hold them back and lose another week in the order cycle. So we absolutely will ship what we have um, through some sort of allocation logic. Uh, and and then the demand just continues to come. <laughs> right. So we're, right. we are, the, the fill rates are low. We obviously have built in some supply chain assumptions for this year as we recover 
like like many other food shippers, as we recover, fill rates will go up. Um, right. And that's built built in as the year goes on, based on a set of assumptions of what could happen with the balance of the of the COVID and the vaccination process. Right, right. Now, talking with other shippers, some depending on the phase of the pandemic, different products were in demand, and, and other products kind of tanked. And so, what that led to for some other companies is they have some lanes that go up by two x in, in volume of trucks, and others go to zero. Did you have the same kind of changing? flux or was it relatively did the lanes that you were using stay relatively stable we did have some of that if you think of our, our about our business there's the yogurt business the traditional yogurt the traditional dandan business and then the white wave fluids business right so this is this is all your 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 silk and your drinks right your your coconut milk right. and almond mm-hmm. milk and these kinds of things um, we did see a significantly higher surge in those fluid network volumes versus mm. the yogurt. So of the fluid network plants that are in Dallas, Mount um, Crawford, Virginia, uh, Southern California, et cetera, we did see significant demand surges there. Uh, we did not really incur or see any ghost freight necessarily. Um, you know, we don't have that problem. So we we, we had the problem of we just can't make and ship fast enough, especially from those fluids plants and those networks. And uh, we can get into it. But, yeah, we had to continue resourcing or running more mini bids to yeah. buy additional capacity where our volumes were up 20, 30 percent on many of those key lanes. And do you see demand settling down in 2021? Has it kind of settled down from the spikes that were during the 2020 pandemic months? No, we, we spiked in the demand restocking um, recovery mm-hmm. in the fall, but that that volume has sustained. Right. Okay. So so, you know, it's a good problem to have. Right. Uh, right. But it, there, there are clearly some up stream supply chain implications on on the buy and the inbound side and now and now you know how how much capacity do we need in our warehouses and our and our transportation network makes sense makes sense okay so one of the reasons that i specifically asked you to come on is because we've been talking during again during our monthly roundtables about procurement and one of the things we do at dat we talk about transportation specifically truckload procurement being a two-stage process there's some kind of awarding process where there's an annual RFP or a mini bid or something where contracts are awarded for future business. And then there's the tender. And the tender is when an actual load comes and it's offered to a carrier. And so everyone, most shippers operate off of this uh, two stages. So let's talk about the awarding process. Can you talk a little more about the bid process that you ran? I didn't realize it was the first network-wide one that you had done for Danone. I, I thought that had been the process before. So tell us a little more about that annual RFP process that you did this time last year. Yeah, we kicked it off uh, right, you know, late April, right in the middle of the pandemic or the launch of the pandemic and the shutdowns that were taking place. Um, no surprise, we did see some pretty aggressive pricing at that time. Uh, right. with many, many cares, you know, wondering, you know, what's this going to, what's going to happen? Um, uh, and then our demand quickly started to recover. So we did run a bid, uh, a rather traditional format in the Jagger tool, multiple rounds. You know, you collect one round, you give some feedback, you get another round. Um, you do a, a whole series of between 50 and 150 iterations of what-if analysis, wow. different award wow. situations. And that did take us it, – it, it can be a very labor-intensive process when you talk mm-hmm. about a full network and this traditional approach that's been around now for about 15, 20 years – you know, thanks to intellectual leadership from guys like you, Chris, that, that kind of wrote yeah. the book on this optimization of cost service trade-offs 
and how to how to do that at scale with millions of lines of data, right? So that's what that's what we use the tools to do. We did make an award by the end of June. Um, we were rather friendly to incumbents, uh, as this was our first network award. You know, we right. we and we were we were in the pandemic, right? So we were rather risk averse. Um, we did put some some paper savings on the board, meaning, hey, we came back with lower rates than we had, you know, in the TMS and the contract at the time. And the new rates and, and a few new cares started up in, in August. And then we know that was almost <laughs> in parallel with everything that happened with all right. the companies and the demand coming back. And it was, you know, our, 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 our strategy to be traditional and, you know, run it, set it, forget it, and let it go for a year. That was the intent. Um, but but because of everything that's happened, that's not how it's gone. Yeah, didn't didn't quite happen that way. Let me ask some questions about the bid itself. So you did essentially two rounds with a like a soft round afterwards. Yeah, it- we did. I wouldn't call it a soft round as much as a if there's a few outliers or there's a few discussion right. okay. negotiations to have with target carriers on Got specific it. campuses. We did have those, but there wasn't a lot of it. Got it. Got it. And um, there's something called package bids or combo bids where a carrier can bid on a set of lanes and then they're awarded them all together or not at all. So did was that something that was used in this bid or did you stay away from that? Yeah, we absolutely did turn that function on, um, recognizing that this was the first time for many of our carriers that they'd seen the network in full that they'd oh, right. seen all the lanes from the combined company. You know, you had a set of carriers that were legacy Dannon and a set of carriers that were legacy White Wave. And now this whole group, they're seeing everything, right? So we did get a lot of what you call the, the package bidding. However, when you run the analysis, none of those package bids were better than the one-way bids we had. Right? Interesting. So you know, there's not when you when when you're trying to exploit a lot of carriers and their networks, we're pretty the tool is good at helping you exploit the best one way option. Right. As mm-hmm. soon as you turn that around and give a carrier a, a round trip option or a continuous loop option, right, they have to make their margin on that trip in total versus I might be exploiting all the backhaul lanes for all my one way moves. And that's exactly kind of what happened. And, and yeah. in polling the carriers in our process, we did discover and validate that very rarely do a lot of the packages seem to win out. Sometimes sometimes they're chosen for service-related items, but mm-hmm. not necessarily on a cost optimization. Yeah, it, what's funny is, and what's kind of sad, is my dissertation was on optimization-based procurement, specifically how you use package bids. And after implementing it for like eight years with a company called you know Sabre.com and Logistics.com, uh, I, we came to the conclusion that they don't work um, because of exactly what you said. And they also assume uh, carriers, when they do this, they try to do out and backs. They look at loops, but that assumes those loads are going to materialize perfectly. And so we found exactly what you said. It was very depressing for me after spending all that time making the system work to find it doesn't actually work. And it's because of this two-stage process. Um, but yeah, so, so okay, it's August now. You've done this awesome bid. I can't believe you did a hundred. Did I hear 150 scenarios? How many scenarios? If then, if we, we formally did about 90 in the tool. Um, but then we did a whole bunch of small one-offs inside of many of those scenarios where we finally reached, okay, this looks like the award scenario. So there was, there was 90, if you look in the tool, you'd see 90 listed, but then we, 
you know, from each of those many more behind them. <laughs> yeah, it's it, you can get lost in those because it's like having a scalpel and people right. love to try different things. It's a, it's a great tool and it's a great process. Um, but OK, so August, you're going in. When did you realize that there was a problem? Um, so 10 days before we launched the award, our largest broker, and we, we have a mix of assets and brokers, right? Because of our okay. kind of network. So it is a mix, um, you know, roughly two thirds assets, roughly. Um, so about a week before we went live, our largest broker called us and said, I need to give you back 20% of the bid. I can't move it. I can't take it at what I just bid. Right. So they, they were a large broker. They had great data. They already saw the trends taking shape in the market. Right. Mm-hmm. So we knew, uh oh, we might have a problem. So we reallocated their part of the bid and, and went forward. We were three weeks into the award. So this is late August. And I've got the other right. two large brokers uh, in our network banging on the door saying, this, 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 this suddenly is not sustainable. I'm suddenly losing at least $200 per load on your business. We need to reprice. Um, so we have to then look at, do I have a performance issue or do I have a real market driven issue? You know, we're getting all the market data. We get it from, from, you know, third parties like DAT, which has been very valuable. We get it from the market analysts like, you know, Merrill Lynch and mm-hmm. Freightways and many other right. sources. And yeah, we're seeing this market quickly shift in a matter of three, four, five weeks. We're going from overcapacity to now demand significantly outpacing, you know, out, outpacing capacity. And now we've got this, oh my gosh, what, what are the options we have? How long can we fight through this? How long are the, are the carriers willing to run at a loss? You know, do they think this is short-term or long-term? You have all those kind of discussions. And then right, you, have right. to, you have to draw a line in the sand and talk about, okay, at what point are we in enough pain where they can't move the freight and we have to reprice? to do a formal mini bid at some point in the fall or how did you how'd you handle that that's exactly right so we initially just engaged several cares in good faith and did a did a review um, and we did initially give a few lanes where we were under the most stress where we had more volume as well right so part of it was our demand was going up at the same time everybody else's demand was rising there was a two-way right. two-way street demand going up and supply being constrained this is two ways here um so we did, we did grant a few one-offs, but then we did realize, hey, this is a larger problem. This is quickly getting out of control. We looked at, we looked at the percent of our volume falling to the spot mm-hmm. market, number one. And then of that volume going to the spot market, what's the percent of premium that we're paying? Sure, we, we can absorb a 5% premium, but suddenly the rates were 25, 35, 45% premiums. And now we're into late September and now we've got a budget exposure risk to talk about with the at an executive level. So we had to draw some lines and say, where's the where's the volume going to spot and what's that premium? Right. And we, we came up with some clip levels and said, okay, here's the top 300 lanes in our network. It's about 25% of our network. Where we're under the most stress, let's put that volume or some of that volume back out to bid. By okay. and large, most of our contract asset carriers – by and large, we're holding rates and able to meet their their bid volume commitments. We had a few exceptions that, by and large, the asset guys held. The brokers were immediately under the most stress because, as you know, on their side, it becomes a spot market buy for them as well, and the rates right. rates were just just skyrocketing. So that the bid was really about primarily, not exclusively, but primarily resetting with the broker network. So let me ask a question about that. Um, 
Did you use the same tool? Did you treat the mini bid like a mini annual RFP or did you do something different? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We did use the tool. We just took a more focused, tight approach. We did one round, mm-hmm. right? We just simply okay. put in we put in the lanes and volumes and we had a tighter number of carriers that we invited. We didn't invite everyone okay. in our network. We were very selective about where we needed to reset, right? And and only a, a few select carriers were allowed to bid and participate, ran it through the tool the same way, and we just did an output. Um, again, light, quick touch negotiation, but then we immediately awarded. So we could, again, the the idea was we're buying capacity. Our demand is more than expected. We have to secure capacity. Our network is all about volume and economies of scale. We can't run Mm -hmm. out of capacity. We have to have the truck. So I'm I'm guessing you didn't do 90 different scenarios for the mini bid. No, we did maybe three, maybe. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's funny because a lot of shippers have been very hesitant to do mini bids because they think it's going to be as painful as the annual bid. And they're very different processes because as you exactly said, is it's all about speed. It's getting rates for stuff that we know as opposed to exploratory and, you know, trying new carriers and all that kind of stuff. It's a much more focused event. That's right. Um, but let me ask you a question about that. Um, were the contract terms for a full year? Were they for a shorter period? Were they up until the next annual RFP? How did you structure the contract? Yeah, great, great question, because there were so many unknowns in the marketplace in general for both the carriers and all the shippers, right? So we, nobody really mm-hmm. knew, is this just a quick restocking effort as we come, you know, as right. we come to the end of the year, or is this sustained? So we assumed that the market data we had at the time said, oh, this is likely a restocking effort. So we did set 90-day rates. Right. Okay. So from those bids, they all came due in approximately mid-January is kind of where they all kind of came due. And then we did another market review at that time and said, OK, um, Q1 is typically lighter. Uh, and there was a little bit of a, a little bit of a supply side recovery and spot market rates did come down a little bit. And little so bit. We, we did go back and, and challenge those rates and we're able to reset and come come back down on some of them. But as we know. Um, you know, I'm, the market took another turn and, and has heated up for a lot of other reasons this spring. Right, right. So do you see, so here's the big question. Um, you did the first big annual RFP, but then you did almost quarterly, right? 90 days, so almost uh, for these mini bid adjustments. Do you see going back to the annual bid and, and once the market settles to not do these quarterly mini bids, or do you see mini bids in the future? Yeah, it's, it's the latter of what you said there, Chris. Um, we, yeah. we are going to launch a, a annual bid, recognizing uh-huh. that we need to be prepared for and we need to communicate our approach to doing, uh, whether it's quarterly, uh, whether it might be monthly, whatever it might be, we will do or we intend to do uh, more frequent smaller bids. Right. Um, To stay at market, to secure the capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're doing as a team is really analyzing what are those thresholds that say, oh, um, uh, I should do a mini bid. Right. On what 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 amount of volume? Where where am I on the spot market? What are the market trends, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can make a non-emotional, more objective, data driven decision that says, ah, I've got this many lanes and, and this much spend going to spot. I'm exposed in the market through the brokers this much. Um, I really do need to reset to market. So we want to we want to do that in a rather systemic, organized, yeah. methodical, data driven way. Yeah. So there's two ways that I've seen companies think about this, and companies are starting to implement something. One is <clears throat> calendar based. I do a monthly or quarterly 
and it happens and, you know, lanes get thrown in based on whatever criteria or it's ad hoc. I'm constantly monitoring, right? And maybe I'm using a pulse, maybe I'm using something else, but I'm tracking exactly what you said. And if some lanes pop up, then I bid those out. So do you have a preference or do you weigh, you think you're going to go calendar based or ad hoc or is it something in the middle? It, it really is something in the middle. We've kind of laid out a plan that says we think we're going to do this quarterly. Um, we, you know, uh, get, with the, with the assumption that volatility will continue, right? So we've looked back right. and said the market's only getting more volatile. Every one of the swings, uh, hot market and cool market, are more volatile and steeper and higher, right? And now we're seeing this volatility, and we're just accepting this. This is likely the new normal. Managing mm-hmm. volatility is now a senior executive level financial objective. How do we manage volatility better? And so we've had to really enhance our capability. And so what we're coming out of the gate after we do the network, the full network bid, we're coming out of the gate saying we're prepared to do this again, maybe in a smaller, tighter, focused area. But we're, we're, the cadence we're going to start with is quarterly. But we're going to also mm-hmm. let our, our thresholds and, our, and, uh, and the market conditions dictate we may have to do it more or, hey, may, maybe the market relaxes and we can go longer without it. That makes that makes sense. And this gets into why package bids fail typically and why some um, RFPs fail because things don't happen what you thought the assumptions were starting. So let's move to that second stage that I talked about. We talked about the awarding, but now the tendering. And so most companies, you have a TMS and I, I'm sure you do. I think you use uh, Blue Yonder. Blue Jay. Um, Blue Jay. Use a waterfall approach. That's right. Oh, Blue Jay. You use Blue Jay. Okay. That's right. Yeah, Blue Jay. Um, yep. Okay. And so... Um, where the, the waterfall, where a load comes in, it's offered to the primary care. If they reject, it goes through the routing guide to first, second, third, whatever alternative. And at some point, it might go to a spot market, to a broker, to a private network. Um, can you tell us how uh, Danone's process works for this, for the tendering? Yeah, by and large, it's exactly as you outlined there, Chris. We, we, we do it very similar to other large shippers. We want to automate that process as much as possible. Yes, our planners are obviously involved and they're on the front lines, but we do allow the tool to go through a tendering, you know, through each route guide. And, uh, well, you know, depending on the volume on that lane on a, on a weekly average, we may have between one and five primary carriers awarded with some allocation of the expected weekly volume. Right. And that was the award, the award approach. And I think your next question is likely, well, what changed or what do we have to do different? (laughs) And, and obviously when the capacity was tight, and we saw more volume going to the spot market, we immediately tried to add more depth to those routing guides so we'd have more mm-hmm. carriers in there and backup-nominated carriers. So we'd have more depth in that routing guide before something fell out to the spot market. We had some nominal success with that, but it was not the silver bullet answer for the, the capacity right. constraints we were seeing. Yeah, I mean, you got hit with a uh, landslide. I mean, the, the demand just really skyrocketed. Um, when you did the award were, and you had multiple primaries on, say, a lane, were they awarded percentage-based or absolute numbers? Yeah. yeah, great question. Great question. So the, the pattern here has always been to do percentage-based, mm-hmm. right? And we're revisiting that topic now, um, analyzing, is it, does it make sense to stay on that or do we want to go to a fixed load number allocation um, in, the, in the event and expectation that if we can get to a, when the market turns again, I don't want to be over tendering my contractual commitments if the spot market might save me money, 
right? So we're right. we're having that analysis and discussion, you know, this week, as a matter of fact. So that's that's an ongoing topic, and it's probably worth everybody visiting. Yeah, I, I think carriers would prefer an absolute number, and that that number never changes, obviously. But for analysis, it's easier for a shipper to think in percentages, right? I mean, and the optimization is easier to figure that out. That's right. Um, but it but the interesting thing, we've done some work up here at MIT, and the cost for a load on a lane, it, you know, it, it's not flat for like a number of loads in a week. As you have more loads, the cost will go up. It's not like economies of scale within a week. And so the 20th load might cost more than the first load or the second load. And so there's a lot of talk about having different types of contracts. So maybe for the first, I'm just making up a number here, 10 loads per week on this lane, it's rate X. But then if it goes above that, maybe they can charge a little more. And so tiered rates or something like that. Have you considered something like that? Or is that something that you don't think the TMS would be able to handle? No, we, we could do it. And different TMSs can take kind of different configuration and setup options to accommodate that same approach. So mm-hmm. for example, one broker said to us, I will give you a backup rate and you can set that up under a different SCAC. And if you, if you ever tender to me with at least 24 hours, it's a guaranteed tender acceptance. I'll take it no matter what the conditions are. So what they're saying is, hey, yeah, it's exactly in spirit what you said there, Chris. There's a second level of pricing as a backup, right? right? After you exhaust your, your route guide and your allocated volumes, there's a, there's a second tier of backup pricing. And there's a logical way to set that up in the TMS. So there are options to do that. We are considering a couple of those. Yeah, but you know what's what's funny is what you described is a hack, right? But it, and it works. And so one of the challenges with TMSs is it seems like regardless of the TMS, they're mainly set to be able to execute a routing guide. Um, but being able to add in this flexibility and uh, being more dynamic is hard for different TMSs, and you almost have to hack the system or do some kind of tweak to work around it. Um, and on the same token, there have been some other shippers and carriers that have worked together, for example, moving beyond EDI, which I'm sure you guys use EDI uh, pretty extensively. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Just, like, just like many big shippers on the, on the traditional yeah. TMS setup. That's right. Right. But um, APIs are out there now, and it might be that they provide a little more functionality. Have you played around or leveraged using APIs instead of EDIs for some of your different providers? Yeah, we, we have plugged in um, one large digital broker, um, and, and they've done a good job, so I'm, I'm just going to use their name. It, mm-hmm. is, it is Uber, um, where okay. we do allow them to give us API-enabled quoting, right? So I have Uber set up as a broker where I have contract rates mm-hmm. with Uber, right? But I also have Uber set up to allow their API-enabled quotes to come in. And we're exploring this with a couple other digital brokers as well, um, and we're, what we're really working through is, okay, where does that API-enabled rate drop into my routing guide, right? If, right. I, if I've gone through my waterfall process, do I want to take their API rate before I go to the spot market? Right? And that's what we're, we're running some trials. We're analyzing that. And, and we haven't really had a lot of success yet where the API-enabled algorithmic-driven rate has been really any different or better than what happens when we, we allow it to drop into the spot market bucket. So interesting. Yeah, it, it, it has been. So of course there's been a few wins here and there. And of course mm-hmm. what they're telling us is in, in, in the range of digital brokers, not just Uber, but what we're, the feedback we're getting is 
hey, our, our algorithm is also based on machine learning, and it should be getting smarter to know if you have carrier-friendly sites where wait times are low or, or you know, those kinds of things where you're a carrier-friendly shipper, it learns that. It knows that. So when the algorithm calculates a proposed rate to you or quotes a rate, it factors that in. Not just the market supply and demand and how many trucks are in the area and all those things, but other things of logic about you as a shipper because we know we know that all not you know not all shippers and campus locations and factories right, right. we're not all the same. There's different operational issues, and so what they're telling us is, hey, give us time to learn and get smarter, and it'll get better. So we are exploring it, we are testing it, we are giving these guys the benefit of the doubt. Um, we're looking at any kind of da- digital enablement that we can, right? But yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. And and the the funny thing, yeah, for machine learning, it's, it's a tough argument for them because that that means you have to use us, and we'll eventually, you know, we'll learn as we go. But you have to trust them and put the you know tender a lot of loads for the machine learning algorithms to really to learn. Um, but I agree with you a hundred percent that different shippers have different rates in the facilities and at uh, DAT and prior to Chainalytics, we've looked at this, and that's what's built in to our benchmarking models. Exactly what you said because there isn't one market rate on a lane. It's really a function of how well you treat the drivers, how fast you turn things at your facilities. So all these other factors that are more than just origin destination really have a huge uh, factor in what the prices will be. Right. And whether you can even get capacity in the first place. Right. And I think I think that's one of the core topics that sometimes drives, you know, back to our organizational design, sometimes that drives mm-hmm. a rub between procurement and operations, right? Procurement sure. wants to look at this as more of a pure commodity. I'm moving freight from A to B on a given lane. That's just a market rate where we all know in operations, our sites are different, our drop yards are different, different areas of the country, all those, you know, sometimes you get a lot of weather, sometimes you're subject to produce season. There's all these other operational factors that really right. play into who you engage as a trusted carrier. You know what's really interesting, Quentin, though? By by being close to your operations, uh, you know, parallel there, it, it actually enables you to make some changes because I've seen it where the procurement's very separate from the operations. And it's very hard to get them to understand that, you know, procurement wants to tell operations, if you improve uh, turnaround times at the DC, you'll get lower rates. But by you guys being together, you see, hopefully, premium and ops get together and they see what ops does impacts what the rate is and you can implement change faster. Is that something you've been able to do to change process to try to improve the level of service and costs? Yeah. So I think, I think you're spot on. Um, yeah. The point of view is spot on. I think we would all agree our, our entire collective team. Um, mm-hmm. And that is absolutely the spirit and the intent and the, and the written stated objectives that we each have professionally in our roles. Um, however, because of the pandemic, the recovery and how consumed we've been with extra demand and constrained supply, just managing that day-to-day survival of moving the freight and, right. and managing that market rate the best we can, that's really been a, and I think not just for us, but for many in the industry right now, um, you know, we've, we've really been consumed with just trying to move the mm-hmm. freight, but in spirit, you're yeah. absolutely right. You know, these, these yeah. op- operational things that impact your rate in the, at the end of the day. Yeah. And also having procurement and ops together. You know, one of the problems that I've seen in other shippers is uh, the ops guys know if, you know, you can either pay me now or pay me later right? We're the carrier. So you can't always, I did a bid back in the late nineties with a uh, consulting company, which I will not name for a large CPG manufacturer. And they went with a low cost carrier on every lane. 
Um, we were there just providing service. And, you know, you know what happens two months later, three months later, they're having to rebid everything. So uh, having procurement and ops together, you kind of solve that. You know, you can I can go low cost now, but it's going to come back to bite us in terms right. of service going back and all that. So it yeah. seems to make sense. And to your other point on the TMS applications, these are really great platforms, right? And I think, you yeah, know, sure. when you talked about, you know, it is kind of difficult to make these changes and be dynamic. Well, you know, I think, you know, 10, 12 years ago, everyone ran these bids annually. You set up your route guides annually in the TMS and you kind of left everything alone for a whole year. And then you did the exercise again. But we know that as the market has changed, become more more volatile and more dynamic, mm-hmm. we've got to be agile. We've got to change and make updates more quickly. And that's where the TMS applications maybe aren't as agile and configurable easily that we all, you know, that we that we might want. And what that's driving is is what we've observed, and, and maybe we'll get to it here, Chris, is, is this whole space of you know, re, you know, robotic process automation and, and yeah, other yeah. programming of these little bots that can sit on top of or inside that TMS environment and can give us some added extra functionality or logic uh, that might make us more agile. And, and that's another topic we're really exploring. Yeah, let's. So before we get to that, because I want to talk about RPAs. Um, it, it's funny, you're talking about, you know, the set it and forget it, do the annual RFP. Yep. It's not even 10 years ago. I I was just looking at some of our data for FMIC and looking at different companies. Um, and it, we go back six years looking at data and I can see when new rates enter for, for a shipper. And it's like clockwork every year. Some shippers do it in January, some shippers do it in June, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, then 2020 was crazy. You're seeing much more uh, spread of new rates entering. So you're exactly right. It used to be like a heartbeat. Yep. And now the number of, we. I just looked at one shipper and they usually have 20 weeks a year where they have uh, more, 100 or more new rates come in. In 2020, that happened 50 weeks wow. out of the year. Yep. So, I mean, you're seeing it more and more. So yeah, I agree with that 100%. But let's get back to RPAs or robotic process automation. Tell us a little about those because some people might not know what they are. And tell us what uh, what you're looking at. Yeah, in, in a sense, you know, you'll hear this referred to as bots, right? And you're kind of referring mm-hmm. to a robot, and it's, it's a little piece of code and programming. And so if you think about your business processes, and in freight, you know, typically we think about how we tender freight. You know, we go through a raw, uh, 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 the waterfall cascade process we talked about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. So that's our business process. So if you can think of and define any given business process, and a set of rules around that that you might want to trigger a different action. And if you can define a trigger with a data point, maybe it's a service level or even some text and comments, things like that. And you can tell, you can then come back with a different result or a different set of data that might guide a different decision that could be automated. Um, that's what this is all about. It's building these very specific point specific um almost like a a small application inside the application that can run or do something at scale in automated fashion. So do you see this? This is really interesting because they're relatively easy to implement. I mean, easy being it doesn't take a year to do the software design and everything. They're pretty quick to implement. Do you see this as a way to test functionality that will eventually get built into the TMS uh, naturally? Yeah, I think that's one thing that could evolve from this. When you look at the TMS providers, you know, we have a, we have a really good solid one with, with, with mm-hmm. Blue Jay. Um, I think some of the TMS providers may eventually 
uh, adopt or enhance their products in this fashion. However, one of the things that's great about RPAs and bots is they can quickly solve a specific shipper's problem or process uh, and, and very, very quickly defined and deploy, uh, you know, deployment implementable uh, fashion really mm-hmm. fast. You don't go through this software writing testing cycle right. that you know a, a development house would go through with their with their application. This is much more much more true agile deployment of technology to automate a process or to give you more business intelligence around a process for an ultimate decision or a path of action. Yeah, I was at uh, a large company. Gosh, right before the pandemic, literally like a couple weeks, and they were enabling and training all of their analysts um, and, and procurement guys to how to write RPAs because they found as a way to streamline a lot of the you know daily repetitive tasks. If someone's having to re- create the same spreadsheet every day, you know, spend a little time and an RPA can do that automatically. So it's a really powerful tool. And so if anyone listening to this, if you haven't looked into them, I, I encourage you to check out RPAs or robotic process automation because it might be something that saves you and your staff a lot of time. It, it is. And it's a quickly, rapidly evolving space for logistics. We know our whole industry in logistics is, has been kind of decentralized and fragmented and maybe maybe behind the technology curve of other areas of the business. But it's tools like this that are really rapidly impacting and enabling us to kind of address things faster, right? Without going to spend yeah. a lot of money on module enhancements and those kinds of things. Right. Quickly right. deployable tools to solve specific quantifiable business problems. Right. Okay. Last question, Quentin. Um, the pandemic seems to be showing signs of easing, knock on wood. Um, are there any silver linings or lessons that you learned during the pandemic, personally or professionally, that you think will translate into things you will do post pandemic? Yeah, I think, you know, this whole idea of the new workforce, um, I know, you know, not just for me personally, but for many of my colleagues in our company and other companies like us, we've all discovered and learned better how to how to work remotely, how to use technology like we're using today, how to listen, you know, how to listen to a podcast to learn something new, um, how to uh-huh. engage our colleagues, you know, when you're not in person and you're not you're not around the conference table. Um, so I think this idea of more remote working um is going to take hold to some extent or another. I don't think we're all going back to the office in the same fashion maybe we were or mm-hmm. in the same extent. I think that's one big takeaway, number one. Um, and I, I think there's a, a different type of trust model out there between people and networks of relationships and how we how we virtually run companies um, from, from virtual control towers uh, or corporate right. offices or, or facilities, whatever it might be. And then I think for us in, in the industry we're in, in food, 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 beverage, it's really a refreshed focus on safety and frontline employees around all the health and safety issues, you know, not just the pandemic, but how do we, right. how do we really maintain and manage that environment so that if, you know, when the next thing happens, how are we more insulated and how do we have more redundancy in our network you know, and then the last thing I'll just say, supply chain in general, through the last couple of decades, we've seen this whole wave of you know just in time leaning down the inventories, and I think that whole topic is going to come under a little bit of challenge. How we how we rethink safety stock and, and where do we place inventory? Those kind of bigger strategic network design topics, I think, are absolutely going to come back on the table again. I, I agree. There's been, it's funny, it seems like uh, two or three years worth of cycles were squeezed into 12 months. 
right? We went down and back up again and uh, the different uh, peaks of different industries. Um, it was uh, been an interesting 12 months. Um, Quentin, thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank, thank you, Chris. I hope this, uh, I hope this is informative to, to all the listeners out there. Appreciate it. Oh, it's great. All right, everyone, stay tuned for the Truckload Market Update with Dr. Enam Eub. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for June 3rd, 2021. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with drive-in. Active rates are up 1.4%, spot rates up 1%, replacement rate is positive 8%. This means the new contract rates are about 8% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are up 1.9%, spot rates up 5%, and replacement rate is positive 8%. Finally, on, uh, on the intermodal side, active rates are up half a percent, spot rates down 1%, and replacement rate is positive 3%. And finally, on the flatbed side, active rates are down 1%, spot rates down half a percent and replacement rate is positive one percent all right Enam. so what do you think's the overall takeaway for the market i think uh, dry van and temp control uh, spot rates are climbing again uh, same same story that as we saw two weeks ago um, month over month we are seeing from april to uh, april to may all modes except in a model rose about two, uh, two to two and a half percent contract rates. So spot rates going up and contract rates are picking, you know, following the same trend upward. But obviously the contract, the spot rates are much higher than the contract rates, but the, the trend is going in the same direction. And do you think that's uh, because we're running back uh, smack into the produce season? Do you think that's just acerbating? exacerbating everything, all the other problems? I, I do believe so. I think we, we are seeing temp control picking, you know, taking a much sharper turn uh, than uh, dry van. Uh, but uh, we also know that when temp control is tight, then, you know, dry van uh, capacity also gets sucked into that. And it's interesting with intermodal, I've been reading more, the ports are starting to, uh, they have less congestion now, less ships waiting to unload. Um, maybe that, uh, do you think that means the intermodal market will continue to, stay flat or do you think that's going to start picking up as we come into q3 i, I think the, the yes on one side the port congestion and so forth to, should uh, flatten it out but the wild card out there is how the 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 backlog the manufacturing side is going to pick back up right i think in the summer all those uh, backlogged manufacturing picks up I think then again, it will tighten the intermodal side. Now, what about fuel? Fuel has been uh, peaking. Um, certainly gasoline. I know diesel is also going up. Do you, What do you think that'll do? Do you think that'll push more onto intermodal and then have pressure on those rates? Or do you think it'll be minimal effect? I think 
I think the capacity tightness is so high that I think it might have a lesser effect than how it used to be before. But typically mm. what we see is when fuel goes up, that is the pendulum just swings a little bit to people. Whoever can play around with the service times would shift a little bit more towards in a model. But the capacity is too tight at this point in time that, you know, if at all the shift comes, it may be because of capacity rather than the fuel itself. Yeah, and, and it seems like most uh, shippers want to have speed at this point, too, cause to keep the inventory flowing. So the trade-off exactly. goes slower in a model might not make sense. Exactly, exactly. And and, and as we have been talking about in the last few uh, uh, sessions that, you know, all of the uh, restaurants opening up and all those opening up, the, you know, the, the all, all the volumes that we are seeing is only on the upward trend. All right. So it's a, it's still a busy spring going into a busy summer. And uh, I guess this concludes this week's truckload market update. Thank you, Eno. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Ina Mayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freight Vine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.